if you have your Bibles, we're going to be, well, let me just back up a minute. Let me just quickly review. Do I have the clicker tonight? Oh, I do. Okay. So we can do the, I can do my introduction uh, review where we were. So when we got together a few weeks ago, uh, it's been a while, you've slept since then. How many of you were in here when we did church history already? So uh, let me ask, let me rephrase that. Any of you not here the last time? Okay, so let me just quickly, I'm not going to take a lot of time. If you were here, then you can also go back online and catch it. But uh, we, we started off, you know, just talking about how this study will prepare us for the coming of the Lord. And uh, we, uh, I laid out a, the, uh, you know, the class schedule. I'm supposed to get through Ephesus tonight. I may or may not get through that. We'll see. But, um, uh, you know, we don't want to remove the ancient landmarks. That's one of the things that we talked about. It's so important. Uh, that we do not remove the ancient landmarks. And history is simply, we put some rules together. The history is simply, uh, you know, the movement of God countered by the movement of Satan. Uh, and we talked about all of that in Genesis. Uh, we talked about how God's the author of all history. God has established an absolute course of history. Um, and in order to understand church history, um, you must have a basic understanding of salvation. Uh, and so those are all things that we've already covered uh, you got to understand the scripture, uh, understand what Satan is doing in this world. I'm going to come back around and touch on some more of that tonight. The devil counterfeits everything that God does. Uh, we got to have a proper view of the premillennial second coming of Christ. We talked about um, how to understand church history uh, and, and how that God has uh, set about the, the, uh, to preserve his words and that Satan wants to destroy those. We talked about how the devil's most effective attack is to set up uh, dual authorities. So these are kind of principles to live by as you go into studying church history. We talked about how we got to focus. The focus must be on the activity of the local New Testament church more than that of the activity of Christendom. Uh, not everything that's Christian is uh, Christ called Christian is Christian. So the local New Testament Bible-believing local New Testament churches is what you really got to look at. And uh, when you do that, you got to understand that um, there is an unbroken line of true Bible-believing Christianity from the book of Acts to this present day and every period of church history and every movement uh, within church history follows a cycle all right so that gets us uh, to the vast majority of historical publications in any age are against god against israel and against bible christianity uh, that's why you gotta be careful with christendom in general even when uh, purported to be from a biblical perspective so I gave you several quotes, which I printed out for you, too. I won't get into that. That just shows you how people, um, you know, twist the Word of God. So I'm going to get to where we left off, uh, which was the seven churches of Asia Minor. Now, this will dovetail real nice to where we're going tonight. So uh, the seven churches of Asia Minor in Revelation 2 and 3 really give us the template that we need for church history. And uh, we looked at Ephesus and how it represents a time period from 33 to 200 A.D., uh, Smyrna, which was 200 A.D. to 325 A.D., uh, and each of, of course, each is associated with the different things that we covered last time. For time's sake, I'm not going to get into that right now, but we will touch on those in much more detail going forward. Uh, and then we looked at Pergamos, which represents uh, 325 to 500 A.D., uh, Thyatira, which represents uh, 500 to 1,000 A.D., uh, and uh, then Sardis, uh, the red ones, which is 1,000 to 1,500 A.D. approximately, or 1,480, however you want to phrase that. Uh, Philadelphia Revela is Revelation 3, 7 through uh, 13, 1,500 approximately A.D. to 1,900, or some would say 1,881 A.D. And then Laodicea, 
<clears throat> which is the age in which we live today, which is from approximately <clears throat> 1900 A.D. to the rapture of the church at Catching Away. Okay, whew, that's all done. That was, so that was the introduction. That's where we left off. So now we're going to get into the birth of Christianity. We're going to talk about the timing of Christianity. So, and I gave you an outline there. And we'll be able to move fairly rapidly through uh, this, this section, I think. And so if you have your Bibles, just open it up to Galatians chapter 4. And you are going to need to be ready to roll in your Bible tonight so we can get through everything that we have in the time that we have it. Because I have myself on a 10-week clock, so I'm going to do everything I can to, to get this in in the time in which we, we have it. So Galatians chapter 4, and uh, verses 4 through 5, the Bible says, But when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. So, uh, <clears throat> so Galatians 4, 4 through 5 uh, says that to us. And in Mark 1, 15, the Bible says, And saying, uh, The time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent ye and believe the gospel. The timing of the birth of Christ and the start of the church was right on God's time. So we got to remember the rules that we just rehearsed from church history. Right, God is the author of history, and there is an absolute course that God has set. It's his story. It's his history. So God has established the book of Daniel, established the exact time of entrance of the Messiah in Jerusalem in Daniel 9.25. I'm not going to turn to Daniel 9.25, but we have covered that in previous Bible studies. And if, if you don't know what that is, um, uh, just, well, I will turn there real quick. It won't take us long. I'm not going to get into laying out Daniel's 70th week. Um, but uh, the Bible does really set forth the parameters for the restoration of the nation of Israel. Um, <clears throat> and so that is, that is exactly what we can operate on to this day. So we take the Bible literally, literally and, uh, until we can't, and there's no reason not to. So Ezekiel 9.25, or not Ezekiel, Daniel 9.25 says, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem unto the Messiah, the prince, be seven weeks and threescore and two weeks, and the street shall be built again in the wall, even in troublous times. Now that's dealing with uh, 445 B.C. into the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, and, and uh, you know when he was uh, born, and then uh, in 33 A.D., of course, he died on the cross. 434 years goes by, and so till Jesus, the Messiah, is cut off. So. Uh, the, why did Christianity start 2,000 years ago? Well, because God fulfilled his word. Jesus Christ is the author of history. He's the one, Matthew 16, 18, who was building his church. Now, that's not really rocket science, um, but Jesus is building his church. But I want you to see the timing from a biblical perspective. Um, <clears throat> I, is that up there? Oh, that's historical. Yeah, two, there it is. I can barely see that. Can you guys see that? Oh, it's a lot better up there behind me. Okay, so this can be uh, seen in the type uh, in type in the book of Genesis. In uh, Psalm 90 and verse 4 and 2 Peter 3, 8, we're told that 1,000 years uh, are as a day to the Lord, and many take uh, that to teach a 6,000-year creation, which is not right. And <clears throat> if instead you take the six-day creation literally, but apply the 1,000-year to time periods, you can see that in the fifth day, life appears on the earth. That's when the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ occurred as well. It's the start of the fifth day, a thousand-year period of history. Um, uh, the fifth day, I'm sorry, I got my notes messed up. The birth of Jesus is the start of the fifth, 1,000-year period of history. So in the fifth day, life appears on the earth. 
And up to the, the, up to the time of the death of Christ, all men were, were dead in trespass and sins. And uh, only after the death and the resurrection of Christ could men be made alive. So in 1650, an Irish Anglican bishop uh, by the name of James Usher published a chronology of the Bible. And this is the standard uh, chronology that is recognized in Christianity. And if any of you have a Bible which dates uh, with dates in it, the chronology of James Usher are usually what's used, like in a Scofield Bible or what have you. I think we actually have a copy of one in, of Usher's chronology in the library. But he places the time of creation around 4004 B.C. and the birth of Christ uh, about 4 B.C. So that's four days have passed and the start of the fifth day. Uh, you, also, you, can, you may also use that chronology, if it is correct, to see that Christ, uh, you know, would come back in 1996, which he didn't. So we don't take it exactly literally, uh, but God has scheduled, uh, he has scheduled a time that only he knows. So we don't set the day or the hour, but we know that the Lord is going to come back, and he does use that time frame. A day with the Lord is a thousand years, Second Peter 3, 8, Psalms 90 and verse 4, and a thousand years is one day. So we know when we look at history, uh, if you take a literal a creation account as it is seven literal days, but you also understand that it was 4,000 years until the coming of Christ, and then the beginning of the fifth day uh, is when Jesus Christ resurrected. So around that, you know, he was born, and then he died and rose again. So life appeared on the earth, a spiritual life through the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, that is, and even in type. And, of course, Jesus will return uh, and rule and reign for a 1,000 years at the, end of the, at the beginning of the seventh day or the end of the sixth day, which is where we're at. So for time's sake, I'm not going to slow down and explain all that. If you've been here a lot, you'll know what I'm talking about. If that is new to you or you're not tracking with me, just say, okay, I don't get that. That's something you mark down for a Bible study. Another time we can talk about it and further, and I can draw pictures on the board, and we can lay it all out. All right, or you can go through D2 uh, and other classes, and we can show you about all that as well. Third point is the timing is, is so the timing of Christianity. It started 2,000 years ago. The timing is, uh, from a biblical perspective, it's right on time. Jesus Christ is starting his church, uh, and uh, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. It came right on time, just as Daniel predicted. Uh, Jesus himself said, Matthew 16, 18, I'll build my church. We know the day with the Lord is a thousand years. It's going to end on time. The church isn't here. Uh, unlike Reformed theology, the church doesn't go on. We're not Israel. Uh, there's a catching away. The bride is caught up into the clouds, and we join the Lord. And so we are not, uh, you know, we are not, we don't inherit all the promises of Israel. We did get their, we do have a relationship with Israel's Messiah. But other than that, uh, God's still going to restore Israel as he promised. So, that our dispensation ends, and then he will return at the second coming and establish the thousand-year rule and reign. So church history is only, and we talked about this a, lot, a few weeks ago, is only from, uh, you know, really the birth of it. We really count Acts chapter 2 with the Holy Spirit when it's quickened. The church is quickened in Acts chapter 2 until the catching away of the church. The Spirit of God is what is really what we put our, our clocks to, although Jesus Christ was obviously assimilating uh, the, the apostles through the disciples that he had in his earthly ministry. Does that make sense to everybody? Okay, moving on. So the timing from a historical perspective, this is really what I wanted to get into tonight with y'all um, that really isn't much review. It's just to kind of look at it just from a purely historical perspective. Um, number one, there's, there's the ease of travel uh, in the Roman Empire. So during the time of Caesar Augustus in the first decades of the new millennium, this was the way God would order it um, from, you know, 1 to 20 A.D. There was peace in the land, 
uh, and Roman military was put to work building elaborate systems of roads and bridges. And these roads were made, made travel much easier than in the times previous to the start of the church. So God actually had prepared uh, the, the uh, world in a way to get the, the, you know, when you talk about the Romans road, and we're obviously it's uh, got a double entendre, right? Not only are we talking about the path through the book of Romans that leads, leads us through the gospel, but it's implied because of the road system that was developed during the Roman Empire. Uh, all roads, as you've heard it said, lead to Rome because they had this elaborate road system, just like all roads lead to Kansas City, right? Now, this is the hub of traffic in the Midwest and the nation, actually, Kansas City. That's why we're a rail, to, that's why we got our own, uh, you know, rail to truck hub right here in Kansas City so they can import goods without ever paying a tariff till they get to Kansas City. We're an inland port. I think there's three of them. There's one in Mexico. I think there's maybe one in Texas. There's one up north as well in Minnesota. Not that you care about that, but because all roads lead to here, it makes you an important city, whether you know it or not. And so uh, Rome was an important city. They had all these roads, uh, and that affected, uh, of course, the area of Israel as well. So those roads made travel easy, and it made uh, you know the opportunity for the apostles to get the gospel where it needed to go easier. Uh, and as is usually the case, man does something that they think is their great idea and their contribution to society <clears throat> only to have God use it for his purposes. So that should give you a measure of comfort as a, is a, you know, if you're like me, you hate Marxism, I hate Marxism, but you know what, even if our country gets taken over by Marxists, guess what? God will use it for his glory and we will capitalize on that. Huh, that's kind of funny. Capitalize on Marxism. So we'll do it because that's the way God works. You cannot outwit God. There is no device that will ever, you'll never get a whole ahead of God. You cannot cancel God. It's just not going to happen. And so, uh, so these roads were built, of course, to establish the military presence of Rome as well. They could move their troops everywhere quickly. Um, uh, but also God would use that. Did you notice in the gospel some of the most receptive people to the gospel were who? The military men themselves. So, I mean, again, God's got a wrench for every nut. So, all those roads were just made perfect for the propagation of the gospel in the church. Okay, the safety of travel in the Roman Empire was also important. That's point B. So Rome not only, uh, it was the ease of travel and the safety. Rome not only built the road system, uh, they made travel safe by patrols of the Roman military. And that's not to say that safety was perfect, but it, it was generally safe, right? There was still danger. Um, but people could, could travel from place to place at that time. And a lot more, it was with much more safety than in other times. <clears throat> and that also aided, of course, later in the spread of the gospel. Emperor Pompey also uh, cleared the Mediterranean of pirates. So they, they cleared the shipping lanes, making travel of ships safer. Uh, why would they do that? Why would they get rid of the pirates? Right, it's economic. It's just exactly, they didn't want to, they wanted to keep the shipping lanes open for economy. And, uh, and so they kept the shipping lanes open. Well, that also, of course, helped. You know, you see several in Acts, Paul's traveling place to place on these ships. Uh, and so uh, it made travel by ship much easier. And so the apostles were able to travel great distances, and the disciples great distances through the shipping lanes that had been prepared, which is kind of comforting to know that, you know, the, obviously these Romans had no, they had no, the last thing they were concerned about was what apostles were doing. But God used all of that to get his mission done. So with that thought, I, I just want to briefly bring out that the Roman Empire was very a very structured state. Uh, they kept the people in line very strictly. You've heard of the iron hand of Rome, right? They were 
They're like iron, right? Iron and clay in the, in the image that Daniel has, that Roman Empire. Um, and so they were very, very, uh, they had a heavy hand for sure. Uh, over 50% of the population were slaves. So they kept the people in line strictly. They did not have a right to assemble without prior approval from the empire. And that's why the town clerk in Ephesus states in Acts 19.40, for we are in danger to be called into question for this day's uproar, there being no cause whereby we may give an account of this concourse, right, of this gathering. Because of, because of the riot over Diana of the Ephesians, they were worried about, you know, the Romans coming down on them and, the, and the, you know, being punitive. So under that heavy, heavily governed society, the gospel flourished. Um, because, again, uh, the people were oppressed, and uh, many of them were, were not free people. They were, in, they were servants of some sort, some slaves, as we would consider some bond servants, which are still like slaves, like you are if you got a, an employee contract. And, uh, and so, um, or you work, you're an MLB player or NBA player, you got a contract, right? So you're an indentured servant, so to speak. Of course, they make millions of dollars, so it's a trade. But uh, uh, I don't feel too, too sorry for most of those guys. But um, maybe if they're in the minor leagues. So when they hear the gospel, though, wow, what a liberating message that would have been. So there's travel. So this gospel message is moving around. There's also a huge spiritual vacuum uh, uh, in the Roman Empire. Pagan beliefs, uh, beliefs taught that gods, the gods, small g, would protect them during invasions and wars. And since they were defeated and absorbed by the Roman Empire, many lost their faith in their gods. And so there wasn't, a, you know, that's pretty demoralizing. So many of the, the pagans were demoralized uh, because they couldn't, you know, stand against the Roman uh, army. That left an emptiness, and, and the main alternative was worship of the empire and the emperor, which, of course, was being asserted year by year, depending on which emperor uh, from the first century forward there. Uh, was it Claudius? From Claudius forward. Uh, so, in fact, the Roman culture required that all the people of the empire, except the Jews, they were an exception, make yearly sacrifice to the emperor of Rome. Because of, of this, people were <laughs> open to the teaching of the Gospels. The sacrifice to the emperor is a major factor in early Christianity. And I will get back to that later uh, when we get to those church ages. But a common language was also present in the Roman Empire. And so there was a spiritual vacuum. There was a common language. Uh, of course, um, a person could travel anywhere in the empire and be able to communicate because Greek was the language that was used by the people. So the apostles could travel anywhere and speak to the people in their own language to give them the gospel, just like English today. So I know that there was a, a, a we know that there was a gift of tongues, which is not the same spirit as spiritual babbling uh, as some would teach, but it is the gift of the Holy Ghost enabling two people in different languages to speak to each other even though neither knew the other person's language. So that is what speaking in tongues is all about. And yes, God uh, did that. And um, hypothetically, he could do that today, but I've never seen it done. So, But uh, with one common language, Koine Greek, uh, that was the language of the New Testament and the gospel, uh, and it spread far and wide. Of course, there was also written, and I'll get into that as we go, there was Italic texts and some others, which is the precursor to the Latin. But uh, with one common language, the Word of God, you know, really was able to be uh, preserved, which we touched on that and then the attack of that. And then the, the fourth thing is, uh, which is important, is the, this man Paul, the Apostle Paul, who is a key man for a key time. The Apostle Paul may be an enigma in history. He's most likely the perfect person um, to spread the gospel within the Roman Empire. Uh, and there are several reasons for this, and I have a long list 
here. I think I've left most of my notes in there uh, uh, for you, just so you have those. Um, but is number one, or A, his zeal. Before Paul met the Lord on the road to Damascus, he was involved in the persecution of Christians. Um, the Pharisees and Sadducees were both against Christians and were trying to stamp out Christianity. Of course, that way, the followers of Jesus, they didn't call it Christianity yet. But as far as the Bible records, Paul was the only one that was actively traveling to other cities to haul Christians to prison. I mean, so he was going out of his way to grab people and haul them in. I mean, he was a zealous, he was zealous, period. Um, and so he had, a, he had a zeal for what he was doing, and that zeal, zeal was still there when he became a Christian, if not even jazzed up even more. And so uh, point B, uh, not only his zeal, but his mind. He was a real intellect. Uh, Paul, without a doubt, was one of the brightest men of his day. And so he wasn't just like every other. He was like every other guy. I mean, he put his pants on one leg at a time or his robe on, you know, however he did that. But uh, uh, the bottom line is uh, he was a really bright fellow. I mean, he could stand toe-to-toe intellectually. Uh, that's why he could roll into Athens. Of course, the Spirit of God helped him. But his mind was prepared. His mind, he was fluent in both, uh, you know, Greek and uh, Jewish culture. He was, a, he was really bright. And so uh, Paul, without a doubt, was, was, was a, he would have been one of the bright men of the day, regardless of whether he was born again or not. Uh, that's why he studied at the feet of Gamaliel. But not only was he taught under the great Hebrew teacher Gamaliel in Acts 22.3, he was also very adept at comprehending and, ad, and adept, adapting to Greek, Roman, and Hebrew customs traditions and culture. So when we look at the record of Acts, we see Paul seamlessly transitioning from markets to jail sales to amphitheaters to Hebrew religious festivals to Roman courtrooms. I mean, this guy, he was all, he really was all things to all men that by all means he might save some. So he was very adept at, at uh, traveling. And that was in part because his mind was prepared, uh, not only by the Lord, but also by his, uh, his upbringing, not to take anything away from his, uh, what the Lord did in his life. But he was a, definitely a chosen vessel. But God had uniquely given Paul this unique ability to adapt the gospel message uh, to the Gentiles, the kings, and to the children of Israel. A good example of that you can see in the Bible, actually. Uh, most, most uh, I don't say most, many, uh, you know, scholars, I'll call them, would tell you that Hebrews is written by some unknown author. I personally think Paul wrote it. But one of the reasons that they say, you know, well, that's not Paul because it's not like Romans. Well, that's because Romans has a different audience. Uh, and I think Paul was that bright. I mean, he knew his audience. He knew how to write. He could... He could write like a Hebrew. He could write like a Gentile. He, and he could probably speak like a Gentile. Or he could speak to the Hebrews, right? So the guy was just, he was just pretty, he's pretty savvy. Um, and so he had this great intellect that God, that he gave to the Lord, right? He gave everything up for the Lord. And God used that in a mighty way. Would to God we had more men like that and women like that in our culture. And there are some, by the way. There's some really bright Christians, too, that, that have given themselves to Christ. So I don't want to say they're not, but we need as many as possible. Uh, next point, his title as a Pharisee. Um, you know, as a Pharisee, none of the other um, apostles had the title of or, of, or office which uh, limited them. So when Peter went to Cornelius, uh, he, he went to his home, but he was limited. Paul, on the other hand, had access to the synagogues wherever he traveled. You know, if Peter rolled up to the synagogue, they're going to go, and what do you want? You know, <laughs> a fisherman, you know. Yeah, uh, but Paul rolls up, and they're like, oh, come on in, Dr. Paul. You know, we'd like to hear what you said under Gamaliel. You know, he was a guy people wanted to hear from. And so, uh, so he had access to the synagogues everywhere he traveled. And so that helped the spread of Christianity. Uh, now, introducing di- direct from Jerusalem, from the school of, you know, uh, the Pharisees, under Gamaliel, 
here's Dr. Paul. You know, you could just see him giving him the intro. What do you have to say, Dr. Paul? So he had access to, to what the apostles really did not have. They were, they were considered by the Pharisees, by his, his peers, they were, what were they? They were unlearned men. Yeah. And they, but they spent time with Jesus. So in a way, that's like all of us, right? We're just like, that's me, you know. Uh, but I, I mean, spend time with Jesus, and that's amazing because they perceived that there was something going on. I mean, Peter delivered some doozy of messages um, to the leadership of Israel as well as Stephen the deacon. So I'm not, by the way, so I'm not saying that you need to have a degree or you need to be some great intellect. Uh, I'm just saying that God used the Apostle Paul in a unique way to expand the church in way both to the Jews and the Gentiles. Uh, he was a chosen vessel, as he said himself in, in Acts chapter 9, for the Gentiles, for the Jews, and for uh, uh, the kings. So he even had a, a special purpose with Paul to stand before kings. So when Paul stood before Nero, who was the Antichrist of his day, that was a divine appointment. God, I mean, for such a time as this, Paul was made to stand there and confront uh, the, the emperor of what was the known world at the time. So Paul was, uh, his title is Pharisee, gave him some street cred uh, credentials, I should say, among, you know, among the intellectuals of his day and the, and the power players of his day. All right, the next one is the status as a Roman citizen. He is unique in that as well. He's a Roman citizen uh, and already made mention of the ease of travel. So as far as society is concerned, Paul had a much higher standing, way higher standing than Jesus or his apostles, his disciples, his apostles, I mean, in society. So that's, that's an interesting thing. Uh, he was also a Roman citizen, uh, and so he did not have the same oppression uh, as, as the other disciples. So... Uh, this ease would even give him great, uh, much more ease in traveling about and doing all the other things that we've mentioned and uh, the access that uh, the other apostles didn't have. So Paul could make a way uh, where others didn't have a way. And we see all that in the book of Acts, right? Even with, uh, he pulled his Roman citizen card. He allowed himself to be beaten and imprisoned. He didn't mention it in Philippi. But once the, you know, once he, the, the penalty for that, for the, the jailbreak that happened because of the, the praising of Paul and Silas and then and then the jail, uh, you know, the, the prisoners being released and, and, the, and, the, and the jailer getting saved. Well, he, under Roman law, he should have been executed. But Paul's like, oh, by the way, yeah, I'm a Roman citizen. So now he's advocating for the, the jailer who just got saved in Philippi. And so Paul had that kind of thing going for him as well. This all, again, helped the church get started uh, throughout uh, the known world, both in Macedonia and in, uh, in Asia, which is modern-day Turkey. Point E, he commanded... He had a command of the Hebrew language. I don't know if you can see that. It's underneath that key. He had a command of the Hebrew language, um, uh, uh, which and the Greek language, I, sh I should say, the Hebrew and Greek. So that's uh, not a lot to be said about that. He also, um, the conclusion of Paul, the Apostle Paul was not afraid to use whatever he had for the spread of the gospel. He was selfless and totally relying on the Holy Ghost, unwavering in his dedication to the truth of the gospel. Paul certainly was a man for his age. So I put the passage up there, 1 Corinthians 9, 22 through 23. Uh, the Bible says there, To the weak became I as weak, that I might gain the weak. I am made all things to all men, that, that by all means, uh, that I, I'm sorry, that I might by all means save some. And this I do for the gospel's sake, <clears throat> that I might be a partaker thereof with you. So uh, that is a lot of details about Paul, a key man for a key time. So we don't, I just had somebody, uh, not here, 
tonight. One of somebody that's attending here, they were writing me a question this last week about about you know why do we you know why is Paul so highlighted in the New Testament? Well, he wrote most of it. Um, God used his epistles, not all. There's also John and um, you know a few others. But at the end of the day, um, you know they Peter and uh, and John both acknowledge the writing of the Apostle Paul and the ministry of Paul. So Paul is is uniquely a fit for the church age. And uh, and so, uh, point five then. Let me pause there. Any questions about that or comments? Take a breath. Whew, I'm moving. So, um, so the foundation of the apostles and prophets is important too. So the groundwork was laid even before Paul's death, burial and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. John the Baptist was killed by Herod because John represented the Messiah, the Christ. When he told Herod it was not legal for him to have his brother's wife, his wife... Uh, Herodias was angry and sought a way to exterminate the messenger of God. So while Baptists do not get their name from John the Baptist, by the way, uh, Bible believers uh, who stand for the truth of God's word certainly find themselves identifying with the sufferings of Christ through through persecution and death. So before the Apostle Paul stepped on the scene as the Apostle of the Gentiles in Galatians 2.7, the book of Acts records that uh, the, the 12 apostles in Jerusalem had already rocked the Jewish world with their faithfulness to the mission of God. And I think we're familiar with that. So while Paul was the key man at a key time to spread the gospel to the entire world, um, be they Jew or Greek, bond or free, the apostles were contemporary preachers of righteousness that, were left an, that left an indelible impact upon the nation of Israel and believers in the Gentile world as well. So when Jesus told his disciples they would be witnesses both in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. He wasn't speaking only of their ability to preach with their mouths. History records that these men took up the cross and followed Jesus, and in some cases records that these men gave their lives on the literal crosses, just as Jesus alluded to in Luke 9.23 and other accounts in the Gospels, right? And so I want to just hit some of these uh, uh, these uh, apostles. And now this is Stephen the deacon, but... Uh, and we're most familiar with this this martyr because he was the first one in prominent in Acts 6 and 7. We know that Saul, soon to become the Apostle Paul, consented to the death of Stephen in Jerusalem after his incredible sermon to the Jewish Sanhedrin. And uh, obviously, Stephen is an incredible figure for the church, and he really sets a tone for what the church has been dealing with from that day forward. A deacon, not an apostle, uh, delivers one of the strongest sermons in history at one of the most critical times in the history of the nation of Israel. And so when, you're, when you start talking about church history, well, let's talk about the church at Jerusalem, right? And, one, and right off the bat, one of the first martyrs is a deacon who is preaching one of the strongest sermons you're going to find in the Bible. And one of the things that we see recorded in the Scripture is something mentioned over and over again throughout history of the Bible. Uh, the history of the Bible is Bible-believing martyrs. We, we see that peace that passes understanding and we see the comfort that comes from God and the consent um, from the third heaven that pulls the faithful saint out of this life into eternity. And so it's like tragic, yeah, Stephen died. But on the other hand, as you, you get a blow by blow of his death, it, 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 you know, he is ready to go to heaven. He's happy to go to heaven. He's at peace about it. He's, he's saying, forgive them for they know not what they do. I mean, Stephen uh, has a peace that passes understanding. And it's incredible. And so, um, so this incredible grace, as you read of his death in Acts uh, seven uh, sixty, Stephen sets the tone for what the future sacrifice of believers looks like. He he looked and sounded like Jesus because, uh, as God placed him in that position, he provided the grace he needed 
and the help in a time of need. And you know what? If you're ever called like that, he'll do the same for you. I'm telling you that. I, I pray that's the case. Um, but, you know, we have friends right now. I mean, just recently, like within the last few months uh, in other places in the world that have literally died as martyrs at the hands of Hindus, zealous religious people killing them. And I'm sure their entrance into heaven uh, was very glorious. So Stephen represents for us the type of faith that has propelled the church forward throughout the past 2,000 years. You know, common men and women giving their utmost devotion to the Lord to bring revival in the vilest of sinners and the most self-righteous of sinners in the case of the Apostle Paul and the Sanhedrin. And so um, so if you really want to just get a snapshot without going through the rest of the, the course, so to speak, you want to get a snapshot of what church history looks like. It looks like Stephen. It looks like common men doing uncommon things to accomplish God's mission and God's power for his glory. There's no doubt that the words of Stephen stuck deep in the heart of Paul as he meditated upon the facts of Stephen's sermon. The scripture tells us in Acts 8 that after Stephen's death was a great persecution on the church in Jerusalem, which we know was growing by the thousands and multiplying. John Fox recorded in Fox's Book of Martyrs the following concerning the atmosphere after the death of Stephen. I think I put this in your notes. Um, if I didn't, forgive me. But it says, Upon this great persecution was raised against all who professed their belief in Christ as the Messiah or as prophet, were immediately told by St. Luke that there was a great persecution against the church, which was at Jerusalem, and that they were all scattered abroad throughout the regions of Judea, Samaria, except the apostles, about 2,000 Christians, which Nicanor, one of the seven deacons, suffered martyrdom during the persecution that arose about Stephen. So there's a couple little details in there that were not given in the book of Acts, but uh, some of it, but we do have most of that. So, uh, so that's some of that. That's Bible, some tradition. But I want to talk. To, by the way, if, if you haven't read Fox's Book of Martyrs and you want to know about church history, I highly recommend it. He was a Protestant, um, and so he wasn't kind to Baptists, but he uh, has a lot of great church history there. And uh, and some of those that persecuted uh, Bible believers like us also are recorded there themselves being persecuted to the death. It's very encouraging uh, to, uh, to see their faith. So point B is Peter. Uh, Peter, uh, we know from Scripture that Peter was always willing to die for Jesus, right? We, we covered that Sunday morning. But Jesus made it clear to Peter that he would not die in a physical battle for the kingdom of heaven, as Peter often imagined. Instead, Jesus uh, let Peter uh, know that he would grow old and be carried to his death in John 21, 14 through 25. And I think we've, we've probably read that. If not, you can go back and read that text. Peter, that's how Peter died. Uh, he got old, and he was carried where he didn't want to go, and he was executed. Tradition has it that he was executed upside down in Rome. Uh, Jesus told Peter that he would get his chance to die, but it wouldn't be in the way that he wanted to. Um, but uh, Jesus, just like Jesus, Peter, by God's grace, faced death that was cruel and unpleasant, and he lived up to his name, right? Uh, Peter, which means rock. As history records, he stood as a rock before his persecutors. persecutors. So, um, you know, the day of him, uh, him uh, turning on Christ was over. He was faithful till the end. Uh, and then this excerpt from Fox's Book of Martyrs is, Among many of other saints, the blessed apostle Peter was condemned to death, crucified, as some do write, at Rome, although I'm not certain that's accurate, albeit some others and not uh, without cause, do doubt thereof. That would be me. Um, Hegesippus uh, saith that Nero sought matter against Peter to put him to death, which then the people perceived they entreated Peter with much ado that would fly, he would fly the city, meaning leave it. 
Peter, through their uh, importunity at length, persuaded, prepared himself to avoid, but coming to the gate, saw the Lord uh, Christ come to meet him, to whom he worships, and said, Lord, whither dost thou go? To whom he answered and said, I am come again to be crucified. By this Peter, perceiving his sufferings to be understood, returned into the city. Jerome uh, saith that he was crucified, his head being down and his feet upward, himself so requiring, because he, uh, because he um, was, uh, he said, unworthy to be crucified after the same manner as the Lord was. How many have heard that before? I'm just kind of curious. So that's kind of a, you've never heard that? Okay, that's, well, that's interesting. That's, you know, I don't, we don't really know if any of that's true, frankly, uh, but we do know that he died as a martyr because God told him he would. So, um, but that is the traditional, um, historical, uh, not inspired version of what uh, is said to have happened to Peter. What is inspired is John 21, 14 through 25. And so we do know that he was, grew old and was taken to where he didn't want to go, and he was martyred. All right, so then you got James, the son of Zebedee, which we do have an account of what happened to him. He was a witness in the sense that he also gave his life. Acts 12, 1 and 2 says, Now about the time of Herod the king, uh, or about that time, Herod the king stretched forth his hand to vex certain of the church, and he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. So he was martyred with the sword. The next martyr we see here in Saint, uh, is St. Luke, the history of the apostles. <clears throat> the apostles' acts was James, the son of Zebedee, the elder brother of John, and relative of our Lord Jesus. Uh, for his mother, Salome, was a cousin, uh, germane to the, vir- to the Virgin Mary. It was not until ten years after the death of Stephen that the second martyrdom took place. For no sooner had Herod uh, Agrippa been appointed governor of Judea than with a view <clears throat> to integrate himself with them, meaning the Jews, he raised sharp persecution against the Christians. So killing the Christians was a way to, a way to um, ingratiate himself to the Hebrews at that time and determined to make, an, uh, make them, <clears throat> I'm sorry, uh, determined to make an effectual blow by stri- striking their leaders. Uh, the account given to us by the uh, eminent prim- uh, primitive writer Clemens Alexandrinus uh, ought not to be overlooked. That as James was led to the place of martyrdom, his accuser was brought to uh, repent of his conduct by the apostles' extraordinary courage and undauntedness, and fell down at his feet and requested his pardon, professing himself a Christian and resolving that James should not receive the crown of martyrdom alone. Hence, they were both beheaded at the same time. Thus did the first apostolic martyr cheerfully and resolutely receive the cup, uh, which he told our Savior he was ready to drink. Uh, Timon and, and Parmenius suffered martyrdom about the same time, uh, the one uh, at Philippi and the other at Macedonia. These events took place uh, about 44 A.D. So uh, so not long after the Lord Jesus Christ himself gave his life, just a little over a decade, uh, these men were given their life. Uh, and that's what history records. Now we do know James, according to, to 12, uh, Acts 12, was a martyr by Herod's sword. So uh, there's probably a lot of... Uh, you know, reasons to believe that account was, was true. And then Philip <clears throat> uh, was born in Bethsaida in Galilee and was first uh, to, be, to carry the name disciple. Uh, he, la- he labored more diligently in Upper Asia and suffered martyrdom, is recorded in, in Heliopolis in Phrygia. And he was scoured, uh, it, history records, he was scoured and thrown into prison and afterwards crucified in 54 A.D. You seeing a pattern here? This is how the church was began. Uh, and by the way, this is how the church really is rolling today, just not so much in America. 
And then in, uh, Matthew, uh, whose occupation, of course, was that of a tax collector, toll gatherer, was born in Nazareth. He wrote his gospel in Hebrew, uh, which he afterwards translated into Greek by James the Less. Uh, the scene of his labors was uh, Parthia and Ethiopia, in which the latter country he suffered martyrdom being slain by a, a, a halberd in the city of uh, Nataba in A.D. 60. So that would be 10 years before the uh, destruction of, not too far, around the time of Paul's death, about, uh, about 10 years before Titus took care of Jerusalem and sacked it. And there's James the Less, uh, the brother of Jesus, obviously born after Jesus. He was elected to, to the oversight of the Church of Jerusalem and was the author of the epistle ascribed to James in the sacred canon in the Bible. At the age of 94, he was beat and stoned by the Jews and finally had his brains dashed out with a fuller's club. And so that's no fun. Uh, and so, <laughs> I mean, it's not. That's terrible and brutal. Um, but he went to heaven. And so then there's Matthias, Acts one twenty six, of whom uh, less is known uh, than most of the other disciples. He was elected to fill the vacant place of Judas. He was stoned at Jerusalem, as history records it, and then beheaded. Uh, I have no date on that. Uh, we find him brought in. And so... How would you like to be selected to be one of the apostles and, and know that what Jesus says, you, will, you shall be witnesses, what that really means. Every one of them was going to witness just like Jesus witnessed. And so we, we think of witnessing. We think of going out and sharing the gospel. They, they, weren't, they meant they were going to witness the power of Jesus' resurrection literally by giving their life, which really is what we should be doing. We should be doing Romans chapter 12, right? We need to be giving our lives a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is our reasonable service. And God forgive us if we are not about that business. All right, uh, let's talk about Andrew. He was the brother of Peter. He preached the gospel to many Asiatic nations. Did I leave all this in your notes? Okay, so you got this. Um, I know you haven't sped read ahead, though, so we'll just work through this together. So um, he, um, he was, um, the history records that he was on his arrival to Edessa, uh, he was taken and crucified, which I think may be Odessa, but I'm not certain, um, up near the Black Sea. And the two, <clears throat> and the two ends of, of which uh, he was crucified in a cross, uh, the two ends of which were fixed uh, transversely in the ground. Hence the, the uh, der- derivation of the term St. Andrew's Cross, which you guys have probably heard of that. So that's where that comes, uh, comes from. And then there's Mark, um, St. Mark, Mark, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So he was born... Of Jewish parents of the tribe of Levi, he was supposed to have been converted to Christianity by Peter, whom he served as a, uh, and I don't even know how to say that word, a man, a manus, a manusus? okay, and under whose inspection he wrote the gospel in the Greek language. Mark was dragged to pieces by the people of Alexandria, and the great uh, solemnity of Serapis, their idol, ending his life under their merciless hands. So. Um, that would have been uh, Barnabas's nephew, and uh, so ha- so goes it. Um, you know, he ended up being very. If that is true, Paul said he was profitable to the ministry. Uh, he was so profitable he became a martyr. If that account is accurate, uh, Paul, of course, the apostle, we call it, that was before Saul. Of course, we co- we covered his death. It is recorded that um, he was per- well. We know he was standing before Nero. That's very much a, a, a the case. So Abdias declareth that under his execution, Nero sent two of his esquires. Uh, their names were uh, Perega and uh, Par, uh, Parthi, Parthiamus. 
uh, to bring word uh, of his death. They coming to Paul, instructing the people, desired him to pray for them that they might believe, who told them that shortly after they <coughs> uh, should believe on and be baptized at his sepulcher. This done, the soldiers came and led him out of the city to, play, to the place of execution, where he, after his prayers made, gave his neck to the sword. So it is uh, supposed that he, that is actually what happened, that he was beheaded in Rome. Um, and I don't have any reason to think that is not the case. I don't know. We do know that he died after meeting with Nero. And so, um, oh, I didn't give you guys that one. So there you go. That's what I just read. And then Jude. Jude, the brother of James, is commonly called Thaddeus. He was crucified in Edessa as well at the age of, or I mean in 72 AD. Bartholomew uh, preached in several countries, having translated the Gospel of Matthew into the language of India. Uh, he propagated it in that country, and it was at length cruelly beaten and crucified by impatient idolaters. <laughs> so I guess that's what you call an impatient idolater, someone who will beat and crucify. Uh, I think they live in, uh, I know where they live. And so um, I won't go on any further since I'm online. But Thomas, uh, Thomas called Didymus, the twin, right, preached the gospel in, in Parthia in India uh, where, exciting, where he excited the rage of the pagan priests and he was martyred uh, by uh, being thrust through with the spear. Now, when you go to India, it is an established fact. Their, their, their history does record uh, that, that. I mean, it's commonly known. Not only that, that he planted seven churches in the southern part of India in Kerala. So um, so it is fairly well established that he was in India, planted seven churches, and did die as it is recorded. So just uh, I kind of, everyone I know in India says, yep, that's, Thomas was the first, you know, Thomas was here. They're kind of proud of that, that uh, Thomas was there. Of course, unless you're a Hindu, um, a radical Hindu. And then there's Luke, Dr. Luke. Uh, the evangelist was the author of the Gospels, and was in, <clears throat> which goes by his name. He traveled with Paul through various countries, and is supposed to have been hanged on an olive tree by the idolatrous, uh, by an idolatrous priest in Greece. And uh, so I do not know. I was not there. Um, uh, Simon, surnamed Zelotus, preached the gospel in uh, Mauritania, Africa, even in, Bra in Britain, and, w and later he was crucified in 74 AD. Um, and then uh, the beloved disciple John, he's the only one that didn't suffer a martyr's death, not for lack of trying, um, he is the brother of James the Great. The Church of Smyrna, Pergamos, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea, Thyatira were founded uh, by him. I don't know. Actually, it was founded out of Ephesus. But anyway, uh, from Ephesus, he was ordered to be sent to Rome, where it is affirmed he was cast into a cauldron of boiling oil. How many of you heard that before? I may have said that. I mention that quite often. And history records that he was thrown in this vat of oil, and he escaped by, by miracle without injury. And then Domitian uh, says that's why he was banished to the Isle of Patmos, which we know he was on the Isle of Patmos. That's where he received the vision of Revelation, where he obviously wrote the book of Revelation. Uh, Nerva, the successor of Domitian, recalls he was the only apostle who escaped violent death, not for lack of trying. It's also recorded, if you read his account in Fox's Book of Mars, that he was super gracious and, uh, and returned to Ephesus um, after the attempt to boil him and uh, called his disciples back who had fled from the persecution and gotten carnal. So there's a, there's a lot written about him uh, in addition to this little expert, uh, excerpt. And then the last but not least, Barnabas um, was of Cyprus. Of course, we know Barnabas and Paul were quite a, a strong powerhouse. 
Uh, he was of Jewish descent. His death is supposed to have taken place about 73 AD. And uh, yet, was notwithstanding all the continual persecutions and horrible punishments, the church daily increased deeply rooted in the doctrine of the apostles and the men of the apostolical and watered plenteously with the blood of the saints. So, uh, so Barnabas is recorded to have also been uh, executed around 73 AD. And uh, again, now, I, I, a lot of that is excerpts from the book of, of um, uh, Fox's Book of Martyrs, which is kind of the received uh, history, um, uh, in addition to what we know from the book of Acts, of what happened to, our, uh, to the apostles. So, why did I say all that? Well, so the church starts there. Um, that is the, when he said, go ye therefore, teach all nations, right? I need you to be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. He wasn't kidding. I mean, these guys went out and, and they gave their life. And, uh, and God, uh, you know, who was it? Uh, oh gosh, it's 4th of July and now it's 7th of July, but it was 4th of July. Thomas Jefferson said the tree of liberty should be watered by the blood of the saints. Well, literally the, the church of Christ was, was built, it's built upon the foundation of the Lord Jesus Christ and, and the apostles and prophets, they were those stones that, man, they gave their lives. And, uh, and so if we're going to go anywhere with church history, we got to really take off our Laodicean hat and for a moment and just think about, just before I, I just go too fast and blow over this stuff like it's no big deal, that's a, that's a lot of sacrifice, uh, you know, and it's, it's a light affliction uh, compared to what Jesus did. And so it's, 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 um, it's just a level of consecration that I don't want to, like, scare people, you know, like, oh, no, you know, uh, to be a good Christian, i got to go be a martyr. Well, to be a good Christian, we ought to give our lives. Romans chapter 12, as I've already said, we, daily. The consecration is, is there, but it's a, it's a proper estimation and evaluation of who Jesus Christ is. That's what faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And there's a reason why you know, people even in our country today are really nervous about people who believe the Bible because they are afraid of this kind of literal interpretation, literal consecration, literal commitment to a message and a man who they can't see, and to a book that says authority. If you I had a Facebook post today out of the book of Psalms, you know, and, and, and Jesus says, you know, kings are going to get, I'm paraphrasing it, but kings, kings are going to answer to me, <laughs> you know. And so we know, praise God, he is the meekest king in the world, you know, and, uh, but the day is coming. In the meantime, uh, the, the principalities and the powers of the earth are so fortunate that we are called, we are not called to be like, you know, Peter, kingdom of heaven warriors, we're kingdom of God warriors. And we are, as Romans tells us, we are led to the slaughter, we're led to the, uh, we're led like lambs to the slaughter all day long, you know. So we're not here to overthrow Chairman Mao, we're not here to overthrow anybody. Uh, we're here to we're here to to love God and love people and take you know get the gospel where it needs to go, but even in the process of of bringing peace to the world, uh, there is there's a lot of opposition, and so the disposition of the apostles is is really important uh, that we get a hold of that even as the days grow closer to the coming of the the, the Lord Jesus Christ because you don't know the climate that the church could enter into, it's obviously getting uh, a little bit more volatile as the days go forward so. That's why I want to just take a moment and mention that. So it's, it's good to kind of sit back, take a deep breath, and go, okay, uh, that's the normal Christian life most other places. Um, and so some of you have been in places on our own, with our own relationships that we have in this church where our brothers, we know, I'm not going to name names, live with this kind of reality every day. 
I mean, their church services are, you know, they're, they're not, they're, 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 they're very bold. But they're also, any given day, they could, they could have this story written about them. They could be taken out, beaten, and hanged from an olive tree. They could be taken somewhere and have their head chopped off. Uh, I mean, these things uh, are happening every day all over the world. And most of the people that that's happening to are not noted in history. Um, they're just, it just, they're just noted in heaven. And, and so I just mentioned that because that's, when you talk about church history, that is church history for, for generation after generation. I'm not saying every week, every day, but there's cycles of history where there's a lot of, there's been a lot of blood shed and a lot of price paid, a lot of pain and suffering to deliver us to this day. And uh, even in modern times where Christianity is, is uh, where Christians have been persecuted heavily, they will tell you not to feel guilty about the blessings in America because they look, they look, they take credit in a sense that their sufferings are, are they're, they're allowed to be, they're privileged to be suffered so we can get carried forward in a weird way. And so we should seize the opportunity and, and, and leverage our lives for the gospel's sake. So uh, because <clears throat> they're happy that God has, has a place on, historically for the last couple hundred years on the planet where there is freedom to preach the gospel and even promote it and to go and send it around the world because they are wise enough to know that that is not normal uh, and it hasn't been normal for 2,000 years almost, 1,800 years. Uh, and so uh, and so we're, we're, we're really blessed. I mean, there's always been pockets of liberty here and there, um, but, uh, but we, we have a really, really sweet deal. And so that's why American Christianity, we're kind of a little bit tainted. We don't really get how much how good we got it so we can get off on hobby horses <laughs> so i'm one of them. i can get off on hobby horse issues i'm guilty of it too uh, and that's why it's good to go back through church history and go wait a minute what are we really doing here and and what you know who brought this to us well jesus brought it to us but we we're laying we, we we're building on top of some pretty awesome foundation and so it's something we should be you know happy about i i know when we started this church i remember uh, the meetings, if I, I did make them, I would, if I had known that Heartland Baptist Fellowship was already a denomination in Oklahoma, I would not have used the word fellowship, but I, I, <clears throat> it was cool to drop the word Baptist. I was not going to drop the word Baptist, so my compromise was fellowship. In retrospect, I wish we just went with Heartland Baptist Church, but anyway, it's all, that cow's out of the barn, but the, the point is simply this. Uh, Baptist was not something I was going to remove from our name, uh, even though to this day the word Baptist, I mean, you can go out to the East Coast, you can go to the Midwest. It's, we're a lot more accepted, and this is a this is an acceptable place to be Baptist. I mean, from here to Texas, you know, you're pretty good. You're in pretty safe territory. But you get out, you get out to the East Coast and out to the West Coast. The word Baptist is kind of like, oh, you're nuts, uh, you're in a cult, and so uh, and there's a reason for that because to to people on the East and West Coast, uh, in some places the Northeast and Northwest. We are like Amish people to them. I mean, we're these uh, Bible literalists. Uh, you know, we 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 claim the we believe it. <laughs> you know, it dictates our life. And so, um, <clears throat> and historically, uh, Anabaptists, Baptists have we there they you know there's a there's a good reason to want to be to identify obviously with the Bible first. We're a Bible believing local church, and you'll hear me say that a lot because. Certainly, Baptist denomination has its problems, and they're not, and, we're, and it's not perfect. But among the people, the groups in the last 300 years, uh, that's why we, we do, we have no problems 
I have no problem identifying with them uh, because they've held fast to the faithful word when others haven't. And, uh, and, and it, it costs, not just in the United States, but around the world. And, uh, and, and that is not to say that having that name associated with you makes you a good church because that, that is not the case either. There's a lot of reasons why people do want to drop it, and they're good ones. But, <clears throat> but at the same time, I'm not ashamed of, of, of a literal view of the Bible, dispensational perspective of the Bible. Um, you know, and if, if, if that doesn't apply to Baptists anymore, uh, then, I, then that's fine. But we're always going to be, a, as long as I'm the pastor and as long as I still got my faculties, by God's grace, uh, you know, I'll say that first and foremost, we're going to hold fast to the faithful word as we've been taught. The Bible is the absolute guide for faith. And uh, it is the words of God. It is the word of God. It's perfect and preserved for us. So it puts you in a whole nother place when it comes to uh, how you pr- progress in ministry. Because you really think, well, God wants us to reach the world. Now, we have a little, you know, I can say things now I couldn't have said 20 years ago. When I talked 20 years ago, I remember our first vision conferences, I would talk about reaching the world in, in you know, great, you know, visionary terms. But, and I'm not saying we've accomplished that, but we def- God has blessed our church. And he's also blessed other churches that we're affiliated with and given us real, real momentum. Even though we're not full here tonight, we're not full on Sunday, we're not packing it out by the thousands, but God has still given us excellent relationships in key places in our community and, and abroad. Because, not because we're anything, but because of his word. And uh, guys, I tell you what, it's worth dying for. That's, that's the other side of that coin. Now you start talking like that, now people get scared. <laughs> but that just tells you really what our value system is. We really don't. We do need to evaluate what is worth living for. Because if it's worth dying for, it's worth living for. And, uh, and so uh, I think that's really our biggest problem is people don't know what they would die for. And uh, so they don't know how to live. There's nothing worth dying for. And so it's ironically, we'll stand up and clap, and we should uh, applaud soldiers for giving their life for our country. But why, why don't we look at martyrdom the same way? I mean, thank you. Thank you, Jesus. For, for those guys get martyrs' crowns. You, you're the author of life. I mean, what do we have to fear? There's, death is nothing for us. We step into more life when we die. Death has no more sting. And so these are things that, that, that uh, Christians uh, that are living under these circumstances, they reckon with all of that in their heart, and they, and they plow into it. So there's a great conflict that, that, is, that has always been present since the first church, uh, and that is Satan, right? Even before the church, you know, Satan was working against Jesus. Satan was working against Israel. Satan's been working since uh, the garden. And so let's remember that, uh, and I don't have this slide, so... Uh, you're going to have to look at your notes. Your next title there is always remember Satan is the great counterfeiter. Now, this is, a, this is just a reiteration of what we've already covered, uh, but to fill in the blank there, he is the greatest counterfeiter of Jesus Christ. So Satan's going to counterfeit Jesus Christ. So you can see in the, I gave you the, in, the, in the notes here, Satan is attributed as being you know, a light bearer, a king, a god, small g, and a prince. Well, guess what? That's everything Jesus is, right? He's the light of the world. He's the king of kings. He is God, and he is the prince, right? And so everything that Jesus is, Satan wants to emulate. He wants to replicate. And, of course, he wants to rob God of his glory. He is constantly countering the word of God through the Bible, right? And I, I've got those, those, uh, uh, some references there. We're not going to look all of those up tonight. For time's sake, you can go look those up. But he's always, uh, and we this is really reiterating what we've already covered in our principles. So he's always going to counter 
the word of God throughout the Bible, right? In Genesis 3, you guys know what he was doing there. He's, he's bringing doubt upon the word of God. And, uh, and so he's always going to be doing that. Um, and then and there's a drought. There's a famine, right, of the word of God. He hates the word of God. And so the word of God causes him consternation. He's got his ministers. He's got all kinds of devices. And um, he is wily. And so we have to stand against him. Uh, he's got all kinds of, of uh, he was in the, working in the New Te- Old Testament. He's working in the New Testament. He's working today. Okay, so we always remember that Satan is a great counterfeiter. Um, and that when it comes to the church, what is the church? Well, this gets us back to where we were last week. Number one, the definition that it's the movement of God through history to accomplish his threefold plan for the universe, this earth, and our lives. And we've already covered that. And the movement of Satan throughout history to counter and counterfeit God's threefold plan. So really, when you look at church history, if you just really want to boil it down to those two principles, uh, that's all it is. It's God moving in history to, to, to fulfill his plan for the universe, this earth, and our lives. And it's Satan countering and counterfeiting that plan. And so church history and the book of Acts. Now, the only thing that is consistent about the book of Acts is its uh, inconsistency, right? And so uh, in Acts 2.38, let's just look at this in the time we have remaining. Acts 2.38. If you get there first, read it. Okay, so it sounds like you got to repent. Now, we know that this is going on because of uh, the fact that Peter's preaching. He's preaching to the Jews. They've already seen Jesus resurrected. And so now if they really believe the message, they just simply need to repent and be baptized because faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. But faith was sight for them, right? It was, it was no question. And so that was how God was dealing with Israel in Acts 2.38 and those that would receive their Messiah. In Acts 8, uh, go to Acts 8.5. And then it seems to be a little different. In verse, uh, verse 5 through 17, um, I'll pick that up. It says, Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached, um, well, for time's sake, uh, I'm going to skip down to verse uh, 16, 15. Who then, <clears throat> or verse 14, Now when the apostles which were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent unto them Peter and John, who when they were come down, prayed for them, that they might receive the Holy Ghost. For as yet he was, uh, he was fallen upon none of them, only they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then laid they hand, their hands on them, and they received the Holy Ghost. So here you see that people believe, but they haven't received the Holy Ghost. Like, what's that all about? Well, again, this is a transitionary time, uh, and, and they, the apostles were engaged in that. We cover that in the book of Acts study. Then all of a sudden you get to Acts chapter 10, and you have these people who hear... And then they, they get the Holy Ghost without any baptism. And then they get baptized, which is how it works with us in Acts uh, 10, 44 through 48. While Peter was uh, yet, yet spake these words, the Holy Ghost fell on the, uh, all them which heard the word, and they of the circumcision which believed were astonished as many as came with Peter, because that on the Gentiles also was poured out the gift of the Holy Ghost. Now we've known, uh, because we read our Bible, that the Gentiles were supposed to get the Holy Ghost the whole time, but the apostles didn't know all this yet uh, because they were they were still uh, learning these things because uh, they hadn't read the, the Pauline epistles, <laughs> so they hadn't been written yet. 
And so, uh, for they heard that they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. Then answered Peter, Can any man forbid water that these should not be baptized, which have received the Holy Ghost as well as we? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. Uh, then prayed that, uh, they him to tarry certain days. So here you see that it's exactly the opposite of Acts 2.38. Instead of uh, you know, getting baptized and then receiving the Holy Ghost, they hear the preaching of the Word of God, receive the Holy Ghost, and then get baptized. And on top of that, they speak in tongues so the Jews know this is a legitimate sign. And so Jews require a sign, Greeks seek after wisdom. Uh, okay, so Acts 6.25, or 16.25, let's go over there and see what happens. In Acts 16, uh, 25, at midnight, Paul and Silas prayed and sang praises unto God. Uh, and the prisoners heard them, and suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bands were loosed. And the keeper of the prison, awaking out of his sleep and seeing the prison doors open, he drew out his sword and would have killed himself, supposing that the prisoners had then fled. But Paul cried with a loud voice, saying, Do thyself no harm, for we are all here. Then he called for a light and sprang in and came uh, trembling and fell down before Paul and Silas and brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved and thy house. Nothing about getting baptized right there. Just believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and get saved. Really? Yeah. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their stripes and was baptized, he and all his straightway. So now you got people getting, Gentiles getting saved without even having to be baptized. What in the world? And then you get to Acts 19, 1 through 6. And uh, it says, And it came to pass that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul, having passed through the upper coast, came to Ephesus and finding certain disciples, he said unto them, Have you received the Holy Ghost since you believe? Now these have believed, but they don't have the Ghost, the Holy Ghost. And they said unto them, We have not so much as heard whether there be any Holy Ghost. They don't even know what he's talking about. And he said unto them, Unto, unto what? Uh, uh, <coughs> unto them, I'm sorry. Unto what? Then were ye baptized? And they said, Unto John's baptism. Then said Paul, John verily baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying unto the people that they should believe on him uh, which should come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. When they, heard, um, uh, when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And Paul had laid his hands upon them, and the Holy Ghost came upon them, and they spake with tongues and prophesied. And all of them, that were about, all of them were about twelve, and he went into the synagogue and spake boldly for the space of three months, disputing and persuading the things concerning the kingdom of God. All right, so, uh, so the point there is that the only thing that is consistent here is that it's inconsistent. Because it's, why is that? I've already said it, so. Why is it inconsistent? Because the Bible's confusing? Right, it's a transitional book. In some places, he's dealing with Gentiles. Some places, I mean, most of the places, he's dealing with the Jews. But when he's, when he's dealing with Gentiles, it's, you can clearly see it's by faith alone, Christ alone. And then when he's dealing with the Gentile or the Jews, he's getting into, uh, you know, sign gifts and baptisms and all these other things. And, and partially, partially, especially when you're in Jerusalem, just practically speaking, too, uh, they'd already crewed crucified jesus so it wasn't an issue do you believe that jesus lived yeah i just saw him you know 50 days ago <laughs> so I, just, I was there going crucify him crucify so the issue wasn't do you believe the issue is do you repent are you sorry 
And are you going to receive him as your, your Messiah? And if they said yes, then they get, will get baptized. And then when they got baptized, the Holy Ghost would come upon them. And so, of course, as he moved away from that into the Gentiles who didn't even understand the law, do you believe that Jesus Christ lived, died, and rose again? Yep, I believe it. Holy Ghost comes upon him. So that was a transitionary time. And so uh, and those that, were, that had Jewish understanding and were under the baptism of John the Baptist, right? again, it was a similar situation. They were like, oh, so you believed on Jesus, but you didn't know he came. So, okay, let's just pray and lay hands on you, and the Holy Ghost come upon him. So uh, they were baptized with the wrong baptism physically and spiritually. They hadn't seen the Holy Ghost, didn't even know what it was because they didn't know the promises of Jesus. All right, so I'm not here to, to straighten out all those issues in Acts. Just to point out... Um, that uh, that the book is transitional. Point two, the book of Acts is a transitional book from the Old Testament structure to the New Testament structure. Uh, we got a high priest in Jesus Christ. It's, it's a New Testament in his blood uh, from the Jew to the Gentile, from the nation of Israel to the church, uh, from the kingdom of heaven to the kingdom of God. And for those of you that don't know the distinction, the kingdom of heaven is the physical earthly kingdom. And it's, you can just do a word study on both of those phrases and you'll see it very clearly. Kingdom of heaven, they were both at hand because Jesus is the king of the kingdom. Uh, but uh, he, the, 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 as Israel rejects the king, their king, uh, the kingdom of heaven promises are literal physical promises that God will not revoke from the nation of Israel. Uh, he, they literally, like the, in Matthew chapter 5 is the constitution to the kingdom of heaven. The meek shall inherit the earth. God has a lot of promises to Israel. Um, the kingdom of God is spiritual. And, um, and so the kingdom of heaven suffers violence. The kingdom of God is spiritual. Uh, and so uh, that is a distinction that becomes very clear in the book of Acts. Uh, it goes from Peter in the first um, several chapters to Paul. And uh, Paul is the apostle of the Gentiles. Peter becomes the apostle of the circumcision, meaning the Jews. From the headquarters in Jerusalem the Jerusalem church to the new base of operations in Antioch. So that's really important for church history because in Acts you do see some transitions that are really important. Um, you do see, I'll run through those again. You go from the Old Testament structure, which when you open the book of Acts is where everyone's mind is there, still under the mosaic dispensation in their mind, the way they think, the way they process everything, uh, to a New Testament structure. By the time you get to the end of the book of Acts, it's a completely different mindset, right? You don't have to keep the law uh, you know, the, the, the dietary constraints and all of those things are off. And uh, there's, you know, all things are lawful, but not all things are expedient. Um, and then you have the Jew to the Gentile. It starts off in Jerusalem with the Jews and ends, ends with uh, churches in the uttermost parts of the earth, going to Rome. You know, the Gentile, you go from the, 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 the capital of the Jews to the capital of the Gentiles. Rome is the capital of the Gentile world. And from the nation of Israel to the church. And so the church is defined throughout that book, of, that book, and by the time it's over, it's very clear that it's neither Jew nor Greek, but a new creature, right? Everyone who's born again constitutes the church. Your pedigree as a Hebrew does not matter, or your lack of pedigree as a Gentile does not matter. It's neither Jew nor Greek, but a new creature. And then it goes from the kingdom of heaven, the, the promises are given to Israel. Peter had to sort out, and like, let's take this from the Romans, to like, you know what, uh, we'll be back later to deal with the Romans right now. We're going to preach the word of God and get people saved because we have a kingdom that they don't even understand. Uh, from Peter to Paul, uh, from Peter to Paul, Mary is not included. Uh -huh. And so Peter to Paul, for those of you that know what 
I'm talking about, Peter, Paul, and Mary. So Peter, uh, Peter was apostle of the uh, Jews. Peter, Paul was apostle of the Gentiles. From God's headquarters in Jerusalem uh, church to the new base of operations in the Antioch church. Now, Antioch is a big deal. We'll talk more about that. But the movement of God, point three, um, in the book of Acts. So without the book of Acts, we would totally be lost and confused uh, how we got to where we are today. But understanding that, what we just covered and flew over really fast, really helps us out with church history because it helps us really understand our foundation, our footing. So here's a simple outline from Acts 1.8, right? You guys know, uh, you shall be witnesses unto me in what? Where? I can't. Jerusalem? Is that what you said? Jerusalem? Yeah, J- Jerusalem, Acts 1 through 7. That's where the primary activity is, is in Jerusalem. Everything is centered around Jerusalem, Acts 1 through 7. And then you got Judea and Samaria in Acts 8 through 12. And then Acts 13 through 28 deals with the uttermost parts of the earth. So you can see that when Jesus says that in Acts 1, you shall be witnesses unto me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. Actually, the book of Acts is laid out that way. And so the nation of Israel also received the witness of their Messiah in Jerusalem. It was rejected. In Judea, it was rejected. In the uttermost parts of the earth, it was rejected. And so, uh, and so that's what happened historically. And, of course, um, we, inspirationally, we use that in our devotional context. As we consider Heartland, right, this is our Jerusalem. When we say our Jerusalem, what we're really saying is we know this really isn't Jerusalem, and, and we're using it in an inspirational context. We're just using that pattern to, to accomplish missions from where we are to where we're going. Um, but because every church ought to, ought, to, ought to be going. That's what it boils down to. Just like the churches uh, that you see all through the book of Acts were going. And then the movement of God, or not the movement of God, the last thing here that we're going to see is remember Satan is always going to be in opposition to what God's doing. And for time's sake, I'm not gonna, we're not going to look up these references. You can do that on your own. But you see, as soon as God moves, Satan counter moves all the way through the book of Acts. God moves, the devil moves. And so that's really what church history is. God has a movement, and then the devil counters it. And God has a movement, and the devil counters it. And so uh, the book of Acts covers early church history from approximately 33 A.D. to 70 A.D. Now, where I wanted to go and get done uh, with was, I didn't get to, which was Ephesus, uh, church history in the book of Revelation. So when we get back together uh, next Wednesday, we will do a, a flyover, which is not very many notes, and we'll be quick, and go back to what we've seen with the seven churches. It'll only take us just a few minutes to cover that. And then we'll be into the church of Ephesus, which is the first church age uh, in which we'll look at uh, how God dealt with the, the church history in that church age. So what I've done is consolidated my notes. I have, a, I, uh, uh, I have, I have voluminous amounts of notes that I'm not going to get into. Uh, it's kind of between HBI and this course that I'm teaching. So what I'll do is I'll pull in additional information as it's appropriate for church age without blowing you guys away with too much detailed information that will make you take a nap. Yes, ma'am. No way. That was because I'm out of time. Uh, So transitional books. I, I went over that, didn't I? The Old Testament structure, the New Testament structure, the Jew, the Gentile. Okay. Well, let me run through it one more time. So 
A is the Old Testament structure, New Testament structure. B is from Jew to Gentile. C is from the nation of Israel to the church. I thought I, yeah, forgive me, Sharon. I should have said D. It's E and F. So the kingdom of heaven to the kingdom of God. Yeah. Movement of God in the book of Acts. That's okay. I mean, that's good. Anybody else have? And then Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and uttermost, and opposition. Any other? And I forgive if I had my, this will go, I'll do everything I can to get my PowerPoints. So that'll help everything go a lot, lot better next time if I can get these PowerPoints. So then you can see them as I'm talking about them. Any other questions? Let me just pause for a second. I know we're out of time, but are there any questions or any foggy things, anything you need, anything I said that needs to be clarified? I have given you out a ton of info. Is this resonating at all? Like, ah, uh, because history to most people is like, like, check me out. I don't want to listen to history. But man, I'm telling you, history is where it's at. Because you don't know where you're going if you don't know where you've been. And so uh, it's so important that, you, that we get a, get a hold of this. So if this is hopefully, uh, if, if you have questions, don't hesitate to email me, contact me, whatever. And uh, I'd answer any questions you got. I will try to bring in more uh, appropriate information without overwhelming you too much with, with too many details. I'm going to stick to the Bible as much as we can uh, for our template uh, and then and, and sprinkle in you know, historical factoids as we go, uh, as it's been recorded. All right. Amen. Yep, I agree. There's no need to worry. Uh, as we say, if God calls you to it, he'll get you through it. So there's no need to worry about it. I'm gonna get, am I going to be a martyr? Well, you may wrap your car around a telephone pole, too. We don't know. So just live your life for Jesus and see how it works out. You know, And it'll all be good. God will give you the grace you need at the time you need it. <clears throat> and, and be thankful that you don't have to fear death. It's a, it's a blessing, no matter how it comes. Um, it's, it doesn't always come the way we'd like. By the way, be praying for the new ones, uh, Gail and Rodney. You know, uh, 